Look quickly with me at Matthew chapter 16. This is a, uh, a get ready scripture, okay? Get ready for the message moment here. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him do what? Well, say it like you mean it now. Deny himself and take up his cross and follow him. Follow me. We've been singing about the cross. Um, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And I, I felt specifically this weekend to address us momentarily and talk about self-absorption. Uh, being absorbed in yourself. And how that it screens your view of life. You know, allow me to try my best to demonstrate it that if I'm looking at life happening all around me and I'm involved in it, and yet I'm so close-minded that I'm self-absorbed, that I take all my stuff and what I'm going through, and, and if I can just sort of pick it up and set it outside in front of myself. And so now as I stand looking at all of life, I'm looking at all of life through this filter of my issues. I'm, I'm staring at my problems or my blessings, whatever. And I'm filtering life through everything about me. Jesus said, if you're going to come follow me, deny yourself. Move away from this self-absorption. You know, for something to absorb, <clears throat> forgive me for this, but it's in the dictionary. Absorb means to suck up. So you kind of, all about you. Right? It means to be holy engrossed this absorption and so if we're viewing life through our own filters all the time it's going to taint the way we see things and the realities that we think exist because we tend to think it's all about me Jesus is saying you're my disciple you need to lay that down you need to make it different you need to deny yourself you need to go to the cross and follow me how many of you have been baptized in water you remember the journey? Down and back up. You were glad that it wasn't three times down and twice up. <laughs> right. But down, we stand there in the water and we say, identify with Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. We go through this moment of baptism, the immersion under symbolically the grave, going to the grave with Christ. And when Jesus came out of the grave, it said the death had no more power over him. Sin had no more power over him. The life he lived was going to be this full life, right? Abundant, spiritual, miraculous life. And you and I, when we come up out of the water, according to Romans 6, we've just lost ourselves. I remember when I was baptized in water in Pachuca, Mexico, in the platform of an EV-free church, they had river water in there. And when they opened the thing up and put us in, there was moss on it and everything. And I thought, wow, this is exciting. And they had actually hand-carried it from the local river and filled their baptism with it. And, and I just remember looking back at that water as I came up out of it, and I thought, it's dirtier still than it was when I went in. Because the old me is buried somewhere in a platform in Pachuca, Mexico. He's still down there. The life I live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. We live this resurrection life. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians six nineteen that you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Right? You're not your own anymore. 
You don't belong to you. When you get up in the morning and say, what am I going to do today? It's better to say, what is the master going to do with what he owns today? And am I going to face life in a self-absorbed manner? I'm going to look at it with a clear focus that says, I belong to God. And today's his day to live his life through me. That's a better life. I'm not trying to be Joel Osteen or anything, you know, but that's just living in the truth. And you know what? That shifts all the responsibility to him. How my day goes is how it goes for him. Let me share a story with you out of Haiti with our friends, the Ruizes. It's not hard to find another story that will help you get outside of you. If you need a story to get outside of being close-focused about your issues, let me share one with you that's a reality that happened in the last couple of weeks in Haiti. I think her name is Elizabeth, and the Ruizes, Perry and Michelle, took another trip down from Texas through the Dominican Republic and into Haiti to help their orphanage and church that we are uh, that they're ministering in. And now outside of this little small church in Haiti, which uh, hasn't suffered too much damage, it's still usable, there are 1,000 people living in temporary shelters just outside and deriving help through this church and orphanage. So as you've been helping them take supplies and things to this group, uh, they just always have kind of like barely enough before they go home. But they got there, and here's this lady, Elizabeth, and she's running around cheering up all the kids. Now, the kids that were crushed and injured in a lot of this mess, the, the most it's kind of like the Civil War. You have all these injuries, but you don't have any way to take care of them. So the, the classic answer is amputation. So if you have a crushed limb, you can't fix it. You just take it off, save the life. So there's lots of amputations taking place on young people and, and adults as well. But she's all over the place saying, now, come on, come on, run to me with one leg now. And she's trying to get them to use their muscles and get up and quit being uh, discouraged. And, you know, come on, give me a big hug, one arm. But she's, she's spurring them on. And some of them don't even want to get up. She's trying to get them up. And Perry and Michelle noticed that she was just like this bee, pollinating everywhere and cheering up everybody and keeping things going and ministering to all these people. So they pulled her aside and said, why don't you tell us your story? She said, well, this is my story. On the day of the earthquake, I was not home. And I live in an oikos. You all don't know what an oikos is? You say, oh, that's a little hut in Haiti. No. <laughs> oikos is the Greek word for household. I have a household. We all live together. You know, moms, dads, uncles, aunts, and cousins, nephews, etc. And we kind of all live together. I was out that day when the earthquake hit, and I immediately headed for home. When I got there, I found that most of my family had been crushed and killed in our home. And as I was searching through, looking for anybody, my four-year-old I found trapped under a piece of concrete. And I stayed with him for four days as he was underneath the concrete slab. I stayed with him, talked with him, prayed with him, kept waiting, and I would go out and look for somebody that would help me move this weight off of him. Finally, after four days in this condition, found a guy with a backhoe coming by, and I convinced him to help me. And so he, he got down with his bucket, and he grabbed the concrete, and he picked it up, and it slipped and crushed my four-year-old son to death right in front of my eyes. Now, there's a person that could live a self-absorbed life in a hurry. But what was her response? I don't belong to me. My son belongs to Jesus. My family belongs to Jesus. We're okay. We're moving on and there's lots of needs. And I'm going to come outside of myself and I'm going to start ministering to people the love of Jesus by the power of His grace. 
Now, I know that was a blind side, and I did it to you on purpose. But there's a moment where we've got to say, hey, wake up. Your life is not that bad. Amen? Amen. Okay, let's close in prayer and you go home discouraged and (laughs) bummed out. (laughs) Not going to do that to you. I just felt like we we needed that this morning. I felt like it was necessary last night too. felt like it was a leading of the Holy Spirit. Not trying to crush you or bum you out. I just want us to remember life's pretty good where we live. Yeah, we've got our problems. And you've got issues that you face. And sometimes they loom large on the horizon in front of you and you think they're insurmountable. But it doesn't take long to find a story that will tell you that, hey, I'm not my own. I was bought with a price. He knows right where I live. He knows everything about me. And I am not going to accept anything from the enemy that's going to try and crush me. I'm going to live for him. I'm going to live outside myself and give this life that I have away. I'm going to be more like Elizabeth. Be the bee that pollinates and goes around and spreads cheer and goodwill. And it doesn't matter really what's happened in my life. It shouldn't stop the flow of being salt and light to others. Let's go a little further in Matthew chapter 21. And let me uh, step out on the diving board today. I say that as an illustration because I used to be a diver, I love to dive. Uh, I loved the high board, and uh, I enjoyed working my way up to that. And I did not enjoy the mishaps from time to time, <laughs> you know, landing flat and hurting yourself. <laughs> but there's that moment when you walk out on the board or you stand at the end of the platform. It's that moment of decision, and you're either going to go or you're going to go back. You know, when you look at maybe 20 feet of space between you and the water. Uh, I did it once at 30 feet, and I thought, man, that's like jumping into concrete. If you miss. so. But there's that sweaty palm moment where you extend to a point where you can't go back. And you have to commit. I feel like I'm just on the edge. And I'm going to give you the liberty of pushing me off if you'd like today. Uh, I want to tread into some familiar scriptures in an unfamiliar way. And maybe draw a new conclusion that will help drive this nail of our spiritual maturity journey in a little further will help us again with maybe a paradigm shift and a value shift. Helps us see the scriptures that we've read before, maybe in a new light. So when you do that, you know, it's it's dangerous territory because like, is this a new doctrine? Is this a new teaching? Is this a weird thing that you're trying to pull on us? And, you know, I'm not. I'm just wanting more and more of the life of Christ in his body. Matthew chapter 21. And so I'm going to walk my way through this as best I can, hanging right at the edge of the board. And feeling a little nervous about it. Is that alright for me to tell you that? Uh, you know, you think I come to this uh, little podium totally prepared knowing everything like the Shell Answer Man. And uh, everything I say is absolutely true and it can't be disputed. I'm, I'm open to you staying after service and correcting me. Bring an elder with you though, okay? <laughs> Matthew twenty one twelve. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple... And overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, 
they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? And then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. Your Bible probably says something like this, if it has demarcations and paragraph marks and insertions of titles, Jesus cleanses the temple. Might say that just above this passage. I'm seeing it differently than that, and I'm actually close to just striking the word cleanses out of my paragraph heading. It's okay, it's not scripture, it's okay to scribble it out. Somebody put it there, I'm thinking about taking it out. Do you have a coffee cup or a tea cup? Did you have coffee or tea this morning, anybody? Do you wash the cup? Why do you wash the cup? Well, yeah, because it's dirty, but you want to use it again, right? And you want it to be clean when you use it the next time. When I read the heading, Jesus cleanses the temple, there's a picture that comes to mind for me that says, well, he's getting it ready for the next use. Just like I clean my coffee cup. I want it clean for the next use. But what I intend to demonstrate for you this morning is that he was not cleansing the temple for its next use. So I think it's an improper heading. Did he clear the temple out? That he did. Did he use the temple? And by the way, let me insert for you that in the Greek, um, when we talk about temple in the New Testament, there are two words. We only see one. It's called temple. Anytime you see the word temple, you, there's, you're thinking of that, that um, design, if you will. Use my Bible. Here's an illustration. Use one side of it as the Holy of Holies. The other side is the holy place. And then everything out around the edges of my Bible here as I hold it up would be the temple courts. Okay? And this is the design. If you've got, you know, uh, the book of maps in your Bible. (laughs) Anybody have the book of maps? Zig Ziglar used to say, I believe the Bible all the way from Genesis to maps. Uh, I like that. Is that there's probably a picture of that scenario. And... But in the Greek language, there's two words. One, the temple is a word that talks about only the outer court area where everybody could go. The other word is used specifically designed to talk about the holy place and the holy of holies where only the priesthood ministered inside here. Okay? When we see Jesus ministering in the temple, it's he's in the temple courts. He's in the outer surrounding areas because he's not a Levite. Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But he is not a Levitical priesthood according to the law, so his only place to minister would be in the outer courts. All right? Very specific wording here that I'm finding. When we read this passage, Jesus went into the temple. The word is used for the outer courts. He drives out those who are buying and selling, doing doves, raising money. They're actually gouging the people, money exchangers. In fact, there was a law at this time that you could not traverse through the temple courts with ordinary stuff. But there was no enforcing of this law. And so, again, if you go to your book of maps, I'm I'm sort of joking, but maybe you have them. Uh, I'm sorry, you probably can't see this very well, but this is a a layout of Jerusalem showing the Temple Mount here. 
And there's a little road coming off to the right that goes to the Mount of Olives. So over here on the east is the Mount of Olives. And what people would do is they didn't want to have to go around this large area of the temple courts and the temple walls as they would cut through with their stuff, their ordinary stuff. They go to the market, get their stuff, come back and say, do we want to walk around this huge temple area? No, let's go through. And so they would just walk through with their ordinary stuff. This is what Jesus was coming into this area and running them out, saying, you, my house should be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. I'll turn in tables and here's the difference I'm finding in the original language. Temple means this place. Jesus says, my house, he uses the word oikos. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about oikos, the Greek word for household, family unit, an assembly of people who get together who have emotional connection and, and likeness to one another. They, they're friends. They're not just acquaintances. They've, they have something in common that they're sharing life together to some degree. And you have an oikos, and I have an oikos today. We can take out a piece of paper, and I encourage you to do that. Just write the names of those 10 or 15 people that you have constant, regular, weekly contact with where you bear influence in their life. They might be included in your oikos. Between Jessica and Una popping these babies this year, my oikos is growing. <laughs> Thanks to those guys, Josh and Ed. <laughs> Jesus is clearing the temple courts and saying, my oikos. Jesus didn't say, I'm cleaning up the temple so that we can do what business we want to do here. I know, you know, I expect you to look at me weird and maybe it doesn't make a whole lot of sense yet. But I don't think Jesus was cleansing the temple courts so they could be used again in the near future. I think he was making a bigger statement than I've ever seen. He was saying, you've turned this into a den of thieves. And if you want, you can go to Jeremiah chapter 7. I'm not out of order here in, in uh, you know, discerning the biblical scriptures in Jeremiah 7. He, Jeremiah is sent to, say, to stand in the gates of the temple and say to the people of Israel, you're leaning back on this statement, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And you're living like hell. And you're leaning back saying, yeah, but we're in the temple and we're God's people and we can just live any way we want to. And the prophet was sent to say to them, that's not going to count for much. You can't hide in the building and say you're holy. When you don't live the life outside the building. Okay? Jesus said, my oikos, what I'm going to build is a household that prays. I'm going to build a household of people that worship. I'm going to build an oikos that reflects my glory and reflects the Father and gets together and worships Him. And out of that, my glory is going to be restored. My worship is going to occur. I'm not trying to secure this temple mount for the future. That's not my plan. If it was, his plan is in destruction still today, isn't it? I mean, the temple mount is in the news this week again about whether or not there will be tours on it, whether the, the Palestinians are saying, yeah, you can have your tours, but you can't pray while you're there. 
They're making rules about visiting the, the Wailing Wall and the Old Temple Mount. And they're still scrabbling over the place. Let me continue. I like what happens after Jesus runs them out and says, My house is going to be an oikos of prayer, a household of faith. And then the blind and the lame come immediately and Jesus heals them. He demonstrates that we can use these courts for the ministry of God. We can do that. But it's about people, not about places. In verse 18 of Matthew 21, says, Now in the morning as he returned to the city, he was hungry. I'm not going to go through all that part. I just want to demonstrate that he's coming from Bethany, which is out toward the Mount of Olives, coming back into Jerusalem. In verse 23, it says, Now when he came into the temple, again, it would be the outer courts, the chief priests and elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? They reasoned among themselves. You can see the Pharisees over here chatting. Have a little huddle. Get a collective answer. They reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, why then didn't you believe him? If we say it's from men, we fear the multitude because they all count John as a prophet. What's our answer? Uh, we don't know. So then Jesus answered and said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What a day to think you can fool the Son of God. huh? And then Jesus begins a couple of parables. The parables are pointed directly at the Pharisees. Now, who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees are the religious leaders of the day. They're the keepers of the law. They're the ones who are uh, telling everybody how to live according to the word of God, according to the law and the structures. You know, they wear the phylacteries on their things and on their forehead, and, and they're always touting scripture, and Jesus goes right after them. What do you think? A man had two sons, came to the first and said, Son, go to work today in my vineyard. He answered, I'm not going to go. Afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered, said, I'll go. But he never went. Which of the two did the will of his father? The answer said, The first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, the tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. He's talking to the Pharisees. The tax collectors and the harlots, the people you despise, are getting into the kingdom ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. He tells another parable of the vineyard. I'm not going to read that. But when he gets done... In verse 42, he goes this way. Have you ever heard in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, and on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables... 
they perceived that he was speaking of them. Clever fellows, they figured it out. When they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. I'll just keep going. There's some other things that are dealt with here in chapter 22. And when we come, excuse me, to chapter 23, it says, Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples. All of this is happening in the temple courts. Jesus says, cleared it out, healed the the blind and the lame, taught these parables. The Pharisees have fronted him off. He's asked them questions they can't answer, and they're simple questions but they're not going to commit themselves. They couch their answer and Jesus disproves them. And then he confronts them and says, your leadership is in jeopardy. You're supposed to be leading people into relationship with God and you're not. You're simply padding your own deal here. You're allowing all this to happen in the courts and it shouldn't be happening here. You are putting more weight on the temple and your position than you are on the will of God. And I'm coming against you. And I'm being very specific. I believe Jesus was shutting down the Pharisees. And as we read, we'll find that the Sadducees come in next. They're a sort of a separate political structure, if you will. Uh, We jokingly say, if you want to know the difference between a Pharisee and a Sadducee, Pharisees keep the law and believe in the resurrection. They they, They have a far seeing. They see a resurrection, the far eye sees. The Sadducees don't believe in resurrection, and that's why they're sad, you see. (laughs) So that'll help you. Maybe. Someday you'll remember that. And the Sadducees kind of had this political power struggle going on with the Pharisees, and when the Pharisees couldn't back Jesus off, the Sadducees come in and throw their stuff in, on the water, and Jesus shuts them down too, and then the Pharisees regroup and send in a lawyer to ask some questions, and finally, Jesus answers the question that he asked, you know, what's the greatest commandment? He says, well, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love your neighbors yourself. And he says this, on these two commandments, all, and I, I've done this lots of times, and it just helps me, on on. These two commandments, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, all of the law and the prophets hang. Everything in this book hangs on those two statements, Jesus said. But see, they were all concerned about the law. They were all concerned about being the leaders of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were more concerned about their position and their temple than they were about the truth. And so Jesus kind of lays that at their feet. And in Matthew 23, which is a demarcation for us, of course, Jesus speaks to the multitudes and his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but don't do according to their works. For they say and do not do. They bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. All of their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at the feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. They love greetings in the marketplaces and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. 
Jesus turns that around in a couple of verses and says, if you want to be great in the kingdom, be the servant of all. He goes on in this chapter to say, like in verse 13, 14, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. 14, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. 15, 16, 23, 25, 27, 29. He lays into the Pharisees for an entire chapter. And then by verse 37, he's weeping over Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. I know I'm going kind of slow, but I don't want to get pushed off the diving board too quickly and be plunged to a, a waterless pool. But I feel like I'm treading on dangerous places here. Jesus is walking out of the temple now after all of this. What has he said? You guys trust in this place. You've let it become a den of thieves. I clear it out. Heal some people. Teach. I dismantle the leadership of the Pharisees in a few parables. I demonstrate that their leadership has become corrupt. The Sadducees take their shot. They're corrupt too. And now I'm going to leave this place. And as he's walking out, it says his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. One of the words that we used in the Greek for this outer court area includes all the colonnades and the porches and the steps and the pillars. The stones of the surrounding elements of the temple. They say that some of the stones in the temple weighed as much as 100,000 pounds. I, 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 I glance at the contractors and think, how do they do that? 100,000 pound stones. And the disciples have just watched all this happen down in the temple. Can you get here with me? They've been following Jesus for a number of years. They know that he's here to set in place a kingdom. They are hoping that he'll restore the kingdom to Israel and mount up on top of the Romans. Right? All this is in them. And Jesus comes in, clears the temple, and they're going, hey, we're getting closer. Then he shuts down the Pharisees and goes, here it comes. Sadducees are out too. Hot dog. Look at this. And Jesus says, and I'm not coming back to this place until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Say, man, we're on that team. We're going to do that. And they had just done it, by the way. All this happens after the triumphal entry. They had already just come down the hill shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, and, and thinking that it was that moment. Right? And as they're leaving, they turn around and, and say to Jesus, Now, I don't know if I, this is appropriate, but this is how I see it. Jesus, this is cool what's happening here. And look at that, all that temple ground there. We're going to take that over, right? That's, our, that's where we're headed. This is it. We're, heading, we're, we're almost there. Isn't that cool? Look how beautiful it is there. And Jesus says these words to him. Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I, I, I'm going to take the sentence for myself to say this way. 
I didn't study it in the Greek. I don't understand it in the Greek. I'm not sure I got it right. But I'm thinking Jesus is saying, not, he's not pointing at stuff. Say, do you see all? Do you see all these things? Have you really comprehended what's happened today? Are you seeing in the spirit all of this whole package, or are you just locked in on the buildings? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone will be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. What a what a train wreck in their minds! What our hope is in this place. It's in this temple mount. It's in this building where God has always met with us as a nation. And you're telling us it's going to be destroyed? AD 70, Titus leads the Romans into Jerusalem. They start destroying everything. They set the whole city on fire. Think with me. Go here. What's inside the Holy of Holies? How is it built? It's aligned with gold on the inside. As the heat fires up, the Romans are ravishing the place. And they look over at the temple, and out from the cracks is leaking gold. These guys pull out their crowbars, if you will, and they literally dismantle every stone from on top of the other stone to get to the spoils. And what Jesus said 70 years earlier comes exactly to pass. They take every stone down. Okay, here's my question. I've got, I've stood on the end of this board all this time. Now I'm going to take the plunge. Ready? <laughs> this is definitely not going to look Olympic. <laughs> not, not now. I'm out of practice. If Jesus has just said in his words, it's not temple, it's oikos I'm after. My oikos is going to be a house of prayer. My oikos is going to be an oikos of prayer. My house is going to be a house of prayer. You got it? He says this, and then dismantles the leadership of the temple, and then states that the whole temple is going to be dismantled physically. That means there's no structure left for the worship center of the Israelites. What? is Jesus going to leave in its place? What structure will now exist for the worship of God? What will we do? You know, they're still asking that question. How are we going to get our sacrifices back? How are we going to get our laws back in place? How are we going to practice what we believe in the whole Israel nation? They still don't have the answers. They've got practices they put in place, but I believe, here's the plunge, that Jesus said, when all this is thrown down, I'm establishing a new order. I'm establishing a new structure. How do we find the structure? Well, we back up into like Matthew 16, and verses 13 to 20, where he says, Peter, who, who people say I am? Well, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said, well, who, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now that's a mouthful right there. The Christ. The Messiah. That's what he's saying. You're the anointed. You're the only one that was ever to come to save us. You're the one that's been prophesied about since, they, since Adam and Eve and all the way through and all the prophets and all the patriarchs. Everybody's talked about you ever since and now you're here. You're the one. 
Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. My what? My ecclesia. We talked about that in the last couple of weeks. Those who have been called out to follow Christ. Those who have been called out and have responded to the person of Jesus as Savior. I'm going to build them up. I'm going to edify and strengthen them. I'm going to construct them. Well, if you're going to construct them, Jesus, what structure will it look like? And the gates of hell shall not be able to prevail against the church, the ecclesia of God. Matthew 18.20, Jesus had this statement. We talked about it before. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Well, that's a new structure. It wasn't about going down to the temple because it wasn't going to exist anymore. It wasn't going to be about being in the courts or the holy place or the holy of holies with the Levites in charge anymore. It was going to be wide open to groups that would gather in his name. Here comes the structure. The new structure of the body of Christ. The illustrations, I, I like what Ed put in the bulletin there. Don't go off and read it just yet. Read it on the way home when you get home. Somebody's but he's talking about this, this great uh, qualification of the church called the family of God. It denotes relationship. It denotes being together, brothers and sisters. We, you know, if you come from an older school of church, uh, that used to be the, the the standard greeting: "Hey, brother. Hey, sister." And there was this. It became kind of trite. But if we go back and capture it again, we realize when we're looking at one another, we're related through the blood of Jesus. When we have communion, we're saying it's more than a cup and a, and a cracker. Okay, it's it's saying I'm part of the body of Christ, and the and Christ is part of me, and so are you. So we're connected. It's about putting the body together. And so when Jesus puts a new structure in place, He says, two or three gather in My name. I'm going to be with them right there. In that moment, I will join them. There's a new structure taking place. It's it's. It's superseding the old law and temple and building orientation. It's an oikos structure. But it's not just random. Uh, Last week, there were some comments made to me that said, you know, you made it sound like everybody's just on a level playing field. We're all equal. We're all the same. Well, the Bible says we are. We're all priests. According to Peter, said you are a, a, a holy nation. You're a peculiar, special people. You're all priests unto God. So we call it the priesthood of believers. Every one of us has the access to the throne room. Every one of us can walk right into the presence of of the king without any concern of being killed, right? He accepts us. We're all, there's no grandchildren in God. Everybody's born again directly of the Father by the Holy Spirit. So we're all his kids. It's an equal playing field, but there's still a structure. There's a priesthood of believers where all of us are supposed to be activated, but the Bible says in Ephesians 4, when Jesus ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. And I gesture that way with him in that moment of his uh, being caught up in the air after he talked to his disciples for 40 days after the resurrection, and they're with him and he ascends right before them. It says, as he ascended, he gave gifts to men in Ephesians 4. What were those gifts? Ephesians 4, 11, 12. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. He gave gifts to men. Why did he give those gifts to his body? Why did he give that oversight structure to his church, his ecclesia? Because they were going to need it. He said these gift ministries that he gave to the church 
were for the building up of the saints for the work of the ministry. It was for the edification of his church, of his body, so that every one of us could be empowered and strengthened to go out and minister in his name. Okay? But look how we sit today. I'm here, the most important part. Now, now go with me. I'm not being egocentric about that statement. Whoever's standing here, you and I are saying our value is we sit, we look forward, and that one important person tells us everything we need to know. I'm beginning to say, wait a minute, can I sit down with you? Can I help us engage in the priesthood of believers? Should we be coming when we gather together two or three in his name under good oversight, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, Should there be elders and deacons? Paul writes his letters to the elders, to to the church at Philippi, to the ecclesia at Philippi, who started in a jail ministry, right? The Philippian jailer and his household, his oikos got saved, and a church was begun. An ecclesia group had been called out of the world and out of darkness into the light of Jesus Christ, and they were saved and they were baptized. And a church began, an ecclesia movement. And Paul writes to the grown, now the expanded body of Christ and says, to the elders, the bishops, and the overseers, the deacons. He's inferring that Jesus left a structure for this living organism called the church. But for 1,700 years, we've kind of organized it the way we're doing it this morning. And I tell you, I've been reinforcing it for 30 years. And now... I feel like I'm trying to dismantle it. I told Rob, and if you're unaware, Rob Hastings, who was led us in communion this morning, is, is on staff to be me in two years. He's going to be my pastor in two years. That's our goal. So we're going to transition the leadership of the church for him to be the senior pastor, and I'm looking to serve with Rob. And I look at Rob and I say, Rob, the messages I'm beginning to preach, I feel like I'm tearing the church apart just before I hand it to you. But the truth of it is, if we make this shift, if there's a paradigm shift in the way we read the Scriptures, and we begin to activate the body of Christ, we begin to loose the gifts that are latent among you, we begin to say to you, you are the ministers of God. Go out there and get them. And when we come together to celebrate, we can celebrate what He's doing among us out there. We can come to worship Him and and share together. When we come together, 1 Corinthians 14, 26, one has a psalm, one has a hymn, one has a teaching, one has a prophecy, one has a tongue, one has an interpretation. Let all things be done decently and in order. There is a structure. It's not pandemonium. Jesus didn't leave His church to just kind of grow like a wild thing. You know, with no structure, no oversight. There's always been some structure, but Peter says when we get together, we're like living stones, and he builds us together to a spiritual house that is there to offer spiritual sacrifices. Am I living on this plunge? (laughs) Or am I confusing you? You said, oh, I knew this all all the time. (laughs) Great. Thank you. The end product of what Jesus left for us is not a temple with courts that exclude some from entry to the Holy of Holies. When Jesus ascended, he had already said, it is finished. And when he said it's finished, in fact, look with me at Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one, just for a reminder.
As you're turning to Matthew 27, I'll start a few verses earlier. Jesus is on the cross. Some of those who stood there when they heard what he was crying out, he said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. He Let's see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again and with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. The moment Jesus offered the ultimate sacrifice for our sin, the veil, the thing that separated God from man, the veil in the temple was torn in half from the top to the bottom. That in itself is a miraculous thing. Things like six inches thick, heavy, 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 two oxen, available at the time, two oxen clamped onto this thing, could not shred it apart. They've done retests to say what with whatever was available at the time, let's reenact it and see if we could have a man tear this apart. Not even oxen can do it. But when Jesus died, it was torn from top to bottom, signifying what? That entry into the Holy of Holies was wide open. Hebrews chapter 10 and we're finished. I don't know this is a complete message. I've already told you some of my hesitation. Another of my hesitations is that we record this and stick it on the internet where I can be crucified by anybody who wants to tear this message apart. And I invite you to come. Talk with me. Straighten me out. Just don't write me off as a heretic. I love Jesus with all my heart and I love his body. And I think that the body has been organized into a a sort of a ritualistic temple building orientation that doesn't allow the church to operate. I think we're limiting Jesus by saying he can only work inside the temple. And we need to change the word temple to oikos. And say, let's turn Jesus loose in our oikos. Let's turn Jesus loose in our lighthouses. Let's two or three gather on our breaks from work and let Jesus sit in the midst. When we get together in our lighthouses this week, I encourage you to, after everybody's seated, in fact, and I'm going to put this, it's in the notes, which are available, Ed, uh, already, that... That you have somebody, you as the lighthouse keepers or somebody in your lighthouse, get them to come early and wait at the door. And as people are coming in, say, the Jesus in me greets the Jesus in you. That's our, that's our icebreaker this week. That's our welcome part. The Jesus in me greets the Jesus in you. Maybe it'll be me and you'll come in and I'll say that to you. And then when we're all seated, we'll put one more chair there. One empty spot. And say, we believe Jesus is going to be in our midst. Let's offer him this chair. We can also use that chair to signify who's not here that should be here. Who would benefit from this oikos of ours and this family that of gathering where Jesus comes. And let's worship him until he shows up in that sense. He's not hiding from us. This is his structure. My oikos will be an oikos of prayer. My gathering, two or three, I'll be in the midst. I'm not looking to be in the temple courts anymore and have to deal with all that rigorous law and pharisaical structure. I've dismantled all those things and I've put a new order in place. It's the kingdom of God. Jesus sent his disciples out and said, wherever you go, heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God came near you. 
When's the last time you or I went out and healed the sick? We don't do it anymore. Why? Because we're ignorant. Now, I didn't say you're stupid. Okay, I'm not accusing of being stupid. I say we're ignorant. That means we just don't know. We've not been told regularly, and I'm talking about the whole church worldwide, 1,700 years of history here, since we started sitting in rows and facing forward, and being taught this way and go out and do nothing. Be spectators. We've encouraged the church to become spectators. And so we're ignorant. We need a revelation of this that says, Whoa, I am the church. I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. You mean I have the eternal creator living within? Well, I should be out healing the sick, raising the dead. I should be bold about truth and life, and I should be dispelling darkness. I'm salt, I'm light. You know, it's no fun to do it by yourself, though. That's why Jesus, I think, said two or three. Two, that's why he sent his disciples out two by two. One could get discouraged. Ecclesiastes says if two walk together, you know, one falls in a ditch, he's got somebody to help him out. Don't do it by yourself. You won't last long. But he gets a partnership and some oikos going and say, hey, how could we go net fishing together? How could we approach our friends and our neighbors with the truth of Jesus? In such a delightful and and picturesque way that they could not resist him and we'll start living different we'll start sensing the spirit of God flowing through us we'll be able to quote with Paul the life I now live I live by the faith of the son of God this isn't me alive anymore it's him when I get up in the morning I won't say oh I'm self absorbed today what will I do we'll be saying oh master this is your life what would you like to use it for today and in that Jesus said, if you lose your life for his sake, you'll find it. That means you're going to live in such a fulfilled manner that the other stuff won't matter anymore. There's lots of stuff that I used to do, you used to do, that were pleasurable and kind of brought you temporary satisfaction. But when you live in the fullness of the Holy Ghost and the power of God, and he's actually living his will out through you, and the rest just falls off as so much stuff. I don't need that anymore. I love this. I love flowing in the kingdom of God. I love seeing people set free. Don't you have friends and neighbors that are just bound? Chains, heaviness, sin, compulsive behaviors, broken marriage stuff, kids falling apart, drugs. I mean, look at all this stuff. And we're carrying around the answer every day. But if we keep setting up like this with everybody facing forward and all you do is be spectators, I just got more work cut out for me. Right? Trying to convince you. If you walk in here one service and the chairs are not in rows, don't panic and don't set them up different. Just Maybe we'll just take them all out. Maybe we'll go like the persecuted church, just have little blocks and sticks and sit on that. Or we'll just stand like the Chinese. You know, The Chinese church meets. Look at how fast the Chinese church is growing. It has no buildings. They mean little spots where literally stand chest to back nose to the back of the head the guy in the front if you remember Dennis Balcom sharing this from Hong Kong the guy in the front is this far from the preacher's mouth with a light bulb hanging right here and this guy preaches to the guy in the back row and this guy here in the front row is like and he can't go anywhere because he's Totally pinned in by 200 people. That guy's got to be the sacrificial lamb. 
All I'm trying to do is just shake it up a bit, okay? Have I offended anybody? And you wouldn't tell me publicly, yeah. Have I? <laughs> What's my? Yeah. Pastor Jeff at BigBearChristianCenter.com. And you can just zing it in there any way you like. It's kind of hard to be anonymous in that moment, though. Um, I said, who would I offend? Tom raised his hand. So, But he and I do that all the time. Okay, not completed message, right? It's, it's a piece of the pie. It's a dangerous place. Uh, you know, get out there far enough and, and you start attacking, like Jesus did, pharisaical structures, temple orientation, sadduceical setups, and, and the, the religious order of the day will begin to persecute that. And so, it's a dangerous spot. I'm okay if I live in there. I mean, I just have to survive a couple years and Rob has to deal with it. <laughs> Just kidding. Father, today I pray sincerely for revelation for myself, for my friends, for your body. God, we don't need more information. I'm sure of that. But if the information of Scripture is touched by your Spirit and brought to revelation in our hearts and minds, then Lord, that will lead us to transformation. And that's what we want. We want to be a transformed body. We want to be an on-fire group of oikoses. We want to be truly ecclesia, the church, called out of darkness into light. We want to be salt and light. We want to heal the sick. We want to announce the kingdom. Bring this revelation to our hearts, Lord, and help us to follow you. 100% in Jesus' name. Amen.